Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are for another session of Baffling Combustions. I think this is our sixth attempt to circle <laughs> around if it's not the drain the the corona of William Blake's Proverbs from his book The Marriage of Heaven and Hell and um, we're moving right along my name is Sam Truett I am Sparrow and I'm Andrew McCarran so I don't know we never exactly left off but we abandoned I guess this work around the the excess of joy weeps and I, and I, you know so i think That's we should just yeah. sur- surge on and maybe sparrow maybe you could read this next one it's yeah important. i think it's finally my turn it's a long one so prepare yourselves yes a big payback listeners three lines on my uh, sheet the roaring of lions, the howling of wolves, the raging of the stormy sea, and the destructive sword are portions of eternity too great for the eye of man. <laughs> hmm. So I hear you, Uncle William. Hmm. And um, just to really lock in with it, I mean, I've gone to the zoo, but the lions weren't roaring in the zoo. Yeah, the lions pretty much never roar in the zoo. Yeah. And I've heard the howling of coyotes. That's a frequent experience of country here in the backwoods of the Catskills. But I, I don't know if I've ever heard the wolves howling aside from, like, you know, TV or something. The raging I mean, of this. Uh, yeah, I mean, it may be that we're hearing wolves and you just can't identify it. They probably sound a bit like dogs. Yeah, my wife thinks that all the coyotes are koi dogs, koi dogs or something. Yeah. Koi Either dogs. they've uh, mated with dogs or they've mated with wolves. and I don't know. But that kind of cross-species germination... Um, it's a difficult. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how, how much validity there is to that. I think it's fairly rare. I'm not sure. Then the raging of the stormy sea. Yeah, I, I, I guess I've experienced that recently down in the Outer Banks 
Um, You know, I was safe on land, um, but I've been at sea in some stormy times. Very memorable. A lot of sonic uh, activity. And I would say, I would say it was too great for, nah, I don't know. I sat it out. Destructive sword. I don't know. I've been mugged. Somebody once tried to mug me with a mic. What? uh, Not at sword point. Well, then uh, he had like some sort of blade. There were two people. This was back in the day in Baltimore. And they approached me. I was wearing a suit for some reason. And they approached me and they were like, give us, give us your money. And I said, are you joking? No, I'm not ah. giving you any money. And I kind of knocked the blade away and kept walking. And they, they um, disappeared. They just evaporated. I don't know. It's just one of those right. strange events. And, this, and the knife was still on the ground? Uh, I knocked it away, and um, it was still in his hand. But they were startled, I think, by my response. And I had the feeling that they were enacting some kind of filial, what is it, what, brotherly kind of, a, you know, they were going to mug somebody, you know? I felt like it was kind of a joke. Um mm. Yeah, I don't know. It's just one of those things where I did something um, out of character. I I should have just said, "Sure, I don't care. I don't want. I don't care about money." Yeah, and then superhero. I know. And then portions that could have turned out poorly. Yeah, I know. I know. That's not how you want to make the morning paper. Are portions of eternity? Um, I'm not sure I understand that exactly, but I guess that they're kind of like those dioramas at the Natural History Museum. They're like <laughs> they're things that you lock in and that somehow resonate more deeply or compellingly to the eternal flow mm. or rhythm. And then mm. that they're too great for the eye of man. Mm. Mm. I, I, have an, I have something I wanted to say around that phrase. What's that? No, I've said enough. I, I want to, I only have a, <laughs> you're gonna wait a little bit that, of gold, you know. I don't want that sort <laughs> I of. I see. You're gonna hold that back. You know, I yeah, that sword. To <laughs> I may be um, reaching here, but <clears throat> what I take from this proverb are echoes from the story of Job in the Book of huh. Job. Um, in, I think there's a lion that's mentioned in the in God's famous. Rather lengthy response to Job. A wolf may be mentioned. Certainly the ocean, the sea is as well. Uh, you know, if I remember the book of Job correctly, if there is a thesis present, it's that um, no human being can quite understand the ways of God, can understand um, eternity. You know, the taxonomical eye cannot trace out order from the chaos and disorder and enormity of things in the universe. Uh, and I wondered if there wasn't um, a piece of that present in this proverb. I think of the, the line from that uh, uh, discourse by God that you're talking about, uh, something like, where were you when I tamed Leviathan? Right. That's the only part I remember. I, that's, that's, it's funny, because that's one of the only moments I remember as well. But I, I do know that there's an epic catalog of animals in addition to the Leviathan that have mysterious ways and um, just there are limits to comprehensibility. There are limits to what we can see and understand. Isn't that um, 
part of Job's struggle. And, hmm. and also the power of God. God is emphasizing his own kind of massive physical power, it seems to me. And these animals, which are the most powerful on earth, wolves and lions, they are uh, sort of uh, symbols. They're, they're extremely terrifying. If you come upon a lion or a wolf, it's, it's unbelievably frightening. And yet the power of God is infinitely greater than that. I mean, that's how I, maybe I'm yeah. being overly literal, but that's how I see, uh, that, that, uh, you know, speech by God and Job. Yeah. And this is all kind of part of a line of Blake's in which he's using nature as a metaphor. Um, and he's doing kind of, a biomimetic operation where he's in words using natural phenomena representations to illustrate in this case i mean he doesn't mention god he no. mentions mm-hmm. eternity which I, I eternity i i kind of get infinity infinity and eternity mixed up Infinity has to do with space, and eternity has to do with time. Is that right? Uh, that that sounds right to me. And uh-huh. I'm so trying to remember that uh, there's a line from uh, a song on John Wesley Harding where, what is it? Eternity, I spoke the word with a voice as cold as ice. Eternity, he said, though some call it paradise. Isn't that right, uh, Andrew? No, Something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah, I, that sounds familiar. Um, I don't know. Is that from the song, John Wesley Harden? No, I don't think it's. I think it's from the one where he goes to the, the house with four and 20 windows and a woman's face in every one, whatever song that is. Um, but I guess I'm wondering how this, these events, the, the wolves howling and the lions roaring and the storm raging and the sword destroying i'm not sure how they relate to time to a sense of Mm. an an ongoing unending time except that those are all circumstances that our rational minds turn away from Mm -hmm. you know if you hear the howling of wolves then it's sort of you know, this far and no farther, like time to turn back. Or if a lion roars in earshot, it's like, wow, you know, maybe I'll go another way or, you know, climb a tree or, yeah. Francis McComber, right? The short, happy life of Francis McComber. When the lion roars, he runs. Huh. The Hemingway short story. What is is the situation? He's uh, hunting uh, lions? He's he's hunting with an American... Hunt, his wife is there and they're hunting with a British guide and he, he runs um, when they encounter a lion and um, that ends up emasculating him and his wife that night has an affair with the British safari guide. Oh, yeah. And you know, she does not come back to her husband's tent and he's, <laughs> he's lying in there uh, alone and, he could, and then she comes back an hour later. Um, and everyone knows what's happened. Wow. And there's a guy who really did find his portion of eternity. 
Because that hour that you're waiting for your wife to come back from the guide's tent is an eternity. That's it's in a my long, experience anyway. It's a long hour. Yeah. Hour an, also is, is a word, I think, that sort of gets picked up in the Middle Ages. is uh, work, hmm. the hours. Oh, the yeah, book the book of hours. hours. Yeah. yeah, it's some hard work lying in the tent. And he says, guess, where, where were you? And she says, oh, I was just getting some air. And his response is, oh, is that what they're calling it now? Ooh. <laughs> Very intense moment in the dialogue. Mm. I'm paraphrasing. I'm butchering the quote verbatim. Yeah. Well, it might be better than the original. You never know. But I mean, Hemingway is an interesting reference, I think, because I think he identifies. I mean, as we all know, as a young person, his mother chose to dress him up as a woman. So Girl. she had as a girl, yeah. So she had this thing for sort of, and I, I don't think it was that uncommon in a sort of Victorian sensibility, that kind of cross-dressing, I think. I don't know. I, I just That's sort of, sense. yeah. But I think that a lot, perhaps out of that experience or some others, he was a person who felt compelled to approach the roaring lions, howling wolves, and certainly the destructiveness of the sword, think, you know, and his whole thing around bullfighting and the valorization of the matador. Um, Plus war. I guess, yeah. The, uh, heroism in war. And the yeah. old, man, old man in the sea, right? The, the old man um, who catches this marlin in the raging sea off the coast of Cuba. It's all there. Yeah. I mean, those are all tropes of... Yeah, those are those seem romantic rushes forward, you know. But it seems to me that that Hemingway is saying you have to go out, shoot the lion, fight the wolf. You have to be a man. You have to be strong. You have to be powerful. Never back down. And Blake is saying something quite different, maybe even the opposite. He's saying just listen to the roar of the lion. And feel, I think what he's saying on some part, some level is feel your fear. Your fear is a portion of eternity because your fear connects you to death. What are you ultimately afraid of is death. And what is death but a, a fear that you won't be eternal, mm-hmm. a kind of confrontation with eternity. So accept you're afraid. Your fear is a holy thing in itself. Fear is not uh, something to be ashamed of. And holiness uh-huh. is not always nice and pleasant. Sometimes it's it's terror. Yeah. That sense of the sort of fear and trembling. Hunter S. Thompson, fear and trembling in fear Las trembling, Vegas. I think the phrase comes from the Bible, doesn't it? I think it does. And I I just want to, yeah, also it comes a little bit from Job and that one of the faces of the divine, I guess, is is fear. Hmm. I I think I'm, am I thinking of Ishmael? Oh. I I think you are thinking of Ishmael because um, Kierkegaard. Oh, yeah. 
he writes about it in Fear and Trembling, and he draws that from, I don't know what the Danish translation is, but he draws it from um, the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael, Hagar. Does he not? Fear and Trembling on That's where he gets the, the, uh, the phrase, Fear and Trembling? Pretty sure that's the, the biblical source. And that's Hagar, who is afraid and trembling? I don't know. I, 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 I knew at one point, but like most other things in my mind, I've forgotten. But it seems like uh, Hagar is uh, cast into the desert by Abraham. And she's about to perish from uh, thirst and hunger. And her son, Ishmael, is little, right? So I think, logically, she would be the one full of fear and trembling, but I'm not sure. That is, that is. I mean, relative to Blake, he doesn't speak of the ear. And again, it's ear, uh, eye, it's eye of man, not eye of woman. But I guess that's a social, uh, limitation, a, a cultural construct, the supposition of man as being somehow representative of the human, yeah. um, condition. But he does talk about the eye of man, Sparrow, not the ear of man. Yeah, I was struck the roaring by that and too. the howling and the raging. Yeah, he, he, um, on a certain level, um, it's almost a kind of joke because he's talking about things. Well, the first two, the roaring of lions, the howling of wolves, they are definitely oral phenomenon, phenomenon taking place with sound. Mm-hmm. The raging of the stormy sea is also visual as well as uh, oral. Mm-hmm. And the destructive sword is kind of purely visual. Maybe you can hear the destructive sword when it's clinking against a rock when your enemy is sharpening it as he prepares to run it through you. But he just mm-hmm. says the destructive sword, so that implies that it's motionless. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it, it's a kind of like, well, your eye it can't deal with sound. <laughs> yeah. It's too, Maybe uh, I here is metonymous for attention. Yeah. yeah right. I, yeah, I think that's. Yeah, I think that's or the. Or just. Con- uh, yeah, yeah. It's a you know in other words it's this trope. Say. Yeah. And I guess what's interesting is too great for the eye. What is it that the the eye when something is too great for the eye? For example, if you know, one chooses to stare into the sun. Well, staring into the sun, it's too great for the eye. And one either goes blind, um, mm-hmm. or you close your eye. Like you, 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 you not just blink, but you actually pull the darkness down. You're, you want to n- not see that. Yeah. R- right? Definitely. Uh, two things come to mind. One, it reminds me of, um, ancient Greek mythology when gods would manifest themselves and it would be too much for human beings to bear visually and they would melt or explode or experience great psychic emotional stress. And the that's, other thing that's, that's in Greek that's Greek mythology? Yeah, when a Greek god I guess when a Greek god would appear for example, um the mother of Dionysus was um what was her name? Salome? Venus? 
Simile. Simile. Yeah, Wait, I think so. Hera, you know, in a fit of jealousy, convinces her to ask Zeus to appear to her in all of his splendor because they're having this affair. And he, does, he, he does, and she, um, you know, she's exploded into pieces, and he takes the fetus of Dionysus, and he um, sews it into the inside of his thigh. Um, so that's why Zeus appears as like a, a swan or a... Exactly. Like a bull, because if he appeared in his full glory, we couldn't uh, handle it. It's just too great to be behold. And the, the other thing that came to mind was early in his presidency, the um, terrible um, President Donald J. Trump. You remember the um, eclipse? I think it was of 2016. Oh, yeah. There was a lot of footage of him kind of staring into the sun without any sort of, um, you know, protection. Quite proudly, right. took off his sunglasses and he looked right into it. He was able able to handle it. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I think he said something like, "Oh, you don't really need those glasses." Probably. Same with the mask. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, this passage, more than anything else evoked the nature of the sublime, Mm. Um, you know, and more than its original proposition, as recorded in Lynchinus, who wrote something, the essay entitled On the Sublime, I think it was Kant, it was Immanuel Kant, who kind of really took hold of it. and I think he wrote an early book, Observations on the Feeling of the Beautiful and Sublime. Mm. And, I, and I think that what Kant claimed is something like that the sublime is absolutely great. That the, <laughs> that's I what don't... he would call the sublime, <laughs> is that which is absolutely great. I don't awesome. disagree. Yeah. Now, as people say, awesome is a pretty good, uh, what's the word, uh, synonym for sublime. Yeah. And the the sublime literally means uh, onto or up to the threshold or the lyman, up to the lintel, up to the the edge. Limit, like, yeah. Yeah, it's like Jackson Brown, you know, take it (laughs) to the limit. One more time. Yeah. I think the Eagles did a cover of the famous cover. Oh, is that it? I don't know. Yeah, from the radio. I don't know. And uh, so the idea of the, the sublime, I think, is also figured in this. And, of course, that's a, uh, one of the supporting structures of romanticism, isn't mm. it? mm the sublime. I don't really, I don't understand romanticism. I've been uh-huh. studying sort of reading about the transcendentalists who were kind of American romantics, considered the American, uh, what's the word, uh, analog of the romantics, of the English romantics. And I don't know exactly that they talk about the sublime or think about the sublime. I think because they're Americans, they think more in religious terms, more about 
the divine than the sublime. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I guess maybe the divine is the sublime. I, I, the sublime is something that kind of, it's like a kind of, what's the word, secular version of religious transcendence, maybe. That's how mm-hmm. I've always understood it. Yeah. In, in, it, in, in the world, uh, mysticism. Yeah, like these things that you see, often they're visual, the sublime. I guess there's sublime yeah, music. I guess Beethoven is sublime. Yeah, I think it, it's connected up with the sense of a formless object, or that hmm. which no longer has boundaries. You know, like you're in the house of the senses, and you've come up to come up to the aperture or the window and it's that which is beyond containment that which i mean in in some sense i think also in terms of what happens when you see something that your eye cannot hold that you close your eyes you you know you lower your head you close your eyes or you have your eyes become lidded, you know, sort of in that, in that gray, or that sort of half dark, that penumbra, so that you can just glimpse it. Um, but that mm-hmm. sense of darkness is mm-hmm. also, you know, sublime. Like what? Like you're talking about looking at Niagara Falls or a moonrise or something? Yeah. I mean, the, I think the, um, the classic, caricature of the sublime is the dark and stormy night is the raging of the seas hmm. I, I don't know i mean when i think of sublime i think of uh, a sunset uh, a rainbow i guess i think of stuff that's up in the air that's you know stunningly beautiful and that also there's something i guess i for some reason i'm drawn to thinking of things that everybody thinks is beautiful not just like, like, for example, I like to look at tenements. The tenements in the East Village, I think, are really beautiful. I, I might go so far as to call them sublime, except that I'm, I'm worried that most people don't see them as sublime. You know, so I would be afraid to use that term. I think sublime tends to imply some kind of universal... Uh, standard of beauty. I don't know. Maybe I'm just imagining that. I think you're right, Baron. I think of the canvases of the Hudson River School painters. Yeah. Examples: Thomas Cole, Frederick Church, Asher Durand. Mm. But I think that the sublime is also tied up with that fear and trembling, that sense of danger, mm. that sense of that this thing can uh, destroy you. Um, if mm. you is that which is bounded, if you is that which is mm. um, has a sense of objectness, this this thing that you're seeing also can foment actual physical change or you know mm. uh, threat. You know, again, I'm reminded of William Burroughs, um, who said perhaps apocryphally. You know, I failed as a writer because I haven't written the sentence that if you read it would destroy you or would kill you. Yeah. Hmm. Well, there's that, and there's that line from Emerson 
happiness unto the brink of fear. Happiness yes. unto the brink of fear. That I always associate in my mind impressionistically with the sublime that there's something happy or joyful, but there's a dark, threatening, fearful quality as well. I hear what you're saying, Sam, but I, I don't know if that's how Emerson was using that language fragment, uh, nor do I recall uh, which essay it comes from. I think it does come from actually nature. I was going to say, I was going to predict that because that's his most famous essay and that's logically where it would be. Yeah, it, it does come from nature. Hmm. Yeah, that was his first big break. That's what he gave at the Harvard Divinity School. He get, he read nature and, and that, I think that was part of his break, wasn't it, um, hmm. Andrew? I believe it was. Uh, no, no, he read um, the Divinity School Address. Uh, yeah. That's what I was thinking, yeah. Which is a oh, shorter good. essay. Oh, thank you. Um, I know that when I look out over the ocean, I can I can get scared. The ocean can be very beautiful, but it can be an awfully lonely mm. vista as well that um, can really send me running away back to the uh, Airbnb. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's inhuman, the, uh, the, the ocean. It, yeah. It's not right. only... Not only isn't it human, it, it doesn't look like a person, it doesn't remind you of a person. As opposed to a tree, which stands up, has kind of a head in a way. Like, a tree is more like a human, but the, uh, to me, but the sea is inhuman and it will kill you. It can kill you in a moment. You can go out swimming and the undertow drags you out, and then you're dead. You know, it's it last, doesn't care. It's deadly. Last year, when I was when we, my family and I, were um, in southern Maine, I went out on a walk just to check out the ocean and commune with the good vibes of the <laughs> ocean. And I ended up feeling as if, on a psychological and spiritual level, I was standing there with a cheap New York City five dollar umbrella. As a hurricane was blowing in, it, it was terrifying. Literally, a hurricane was coming in? No, I'm speaking in figurative terms. I just, there was yeah. something awesome about the sublime. It was beautiful, yeah. but um, it darkened and um, there was just a lot of complexity in it and emotional power. And I, I, you know, it's a, Sam's earlier remark resonates with me. Obliterating is the word that comes to mind. There's something kind of obliterating about the sea. Sigmund Freud's civilization and discontents, he works with the concept of the oceanic, describe those moments when the ego breaks down. The oceanic, when um, you don't feel as if there's um, any difference between your ego identity self and and um, the universe. It's a beautiful thing, but it's a terrifying thing as well. Your self-definition has exploded. I mean, one thing I, I wanted to say is, I don't know if either of you have ever been to Big Sur in California. Yeah. Because yeah. 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 Um, we used to have a little patch of land there, and so my parents would go out there. I think this was just, I think I'd, I had been conceived so I believe I'd gone to Big Sur in utero. And then I've, I subsequently lived in San Francisco, blah, blah, blah. But in Big Sur, my mom observed that the people who made it in Big Sur that were able 
through decades to sustain themselves there. They built their houses off of these, off of the terrifying vertical limits of Big Sur. They would set their houses back because those people who built their houses so that they were in the Pacific Vista, unsustainable. They went bonkers. Um, and the people who were set back were able to kind of move back and forth to do a little dance with that verity, mm. with that absoluteness, that those sheer, that that exposure. Let alone that so, you're on a cliff. Uh, yeah. You know, not only is it uh, you're faced with eternity, uh, a portion of eternity, but you uh, can fall right down into it. <laughs> yeah, you... but I'll tell you, there are plenty of houses in Big Sur that are right in the teeth of the ocean and the storms, you know. Have you read Jack Kerouac's greatest novel, from my perspective, Big Sur? Yeah, I have. I, I think someplace or other, in fact, Andrew, I don't know if I've mentioned this, I have a City Lights published printing of his talking to the ocean i forget what it's called it's so um, see it's called the poem at the end of the novel is entitled sea yeah and i have that poem in a folio edition so that it's like a not a scroll but it's one long sheet of paper it's very well printed i i it's someplace in my mixed up files well that's valuable you should definitely Maybe, yeah. hang on to that I mean, Kerouac, um, in the novel, Sparrow, he goes down to Big Sur. He's staying in Lawrence Ferlinghetti's cabin. And uh, he wants to go down there to dry up from alcohol and to begin a new writing project and to find his feet spiritually and to get physically healthy again um, after really struggling with fame post the publication of On the, Ro- On the Road. But he, he goes there and experiences precisely what Sam was talking about and what we've all been talking about over the past 10 minutes. And oh, that's the oh. terrifying power of the, the ocean. And um, it really rips him apart. Um, and he at the end of the novel, he flees. All he can think about is getting back to Long Island and living mm-hmm. um, a relatively tiny life. Uh, as a refuge from what he experiences. And he goes there trying to write about the ocean, and it ends up um, darkening. Hmm. Hmm. Very powerful. When, when is that? Do you know what year that is? That was uh, published in the early 1960s. I hmm. think 1961 or two. That, uh, but that's a guess. I may, I may be wrong. A few years, you know, five, six, seven years after On the Road. It came out after the Dharma Bumps. The, the one thing I would want to say at this juncture is that all of these dances with the, you know, stepping outside the doors of perception into like life threatening, psychic threatening contexts, it seems to me like a very male centric or kind of a male thing. Mm. Um, I don't know if that's fair, but it, it seems like, like a guy thing. Whereas, you know, 
and I and I don't know. I don't mean to speak in kind of broad generalities, and you know, somehow ascribe to the male and female some you know blah blah blah, which is you know kind of limiting. But it seems to me that it's the feminine part of ourselves that it would be sensible and would build your house, you know, back from the cliff, mm-hmm. um, you know, that would um, that doesn't necessarily need to step into the ring and be gored by a bull or, um, mm-hmm. you know, put oneself in danger. Um, do you see what I'm saying that, you know? We're capable of imagining all of those things perfectly well. Do we need to put ourselves on the line in that way? It seems, it doesn't seem sensible. It's, we're children. We like, whoa, 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 you know, be careful. Don't go too fast on the bike. Wear your helmet. All those things, right? <laughs> all of those nurturing things. Um, hmm. I don't know. What comes to mind is I had this girlfriend in the 80s. I will call her Yetta. She was a Scorpio. And, you know, after we broke up, it occurred to me that we were constantly, she and I were constantly walking on the edges of cliffs because uh, we both lived in Washington Heights at the time. She liked danger. You know, she was drawn to danger much more than me. And uh, and the other thought that came to my mind was uh, childbirth, which you know, something of a choice, at least for some women. And, um, you know, I think there's a theory when my wife was a goddess-worshipping eco-feminist, she, I think she kind of believed that, like, men invented war out of envy that women had menstruation, women have childbirth, women have, like, real trauma. And so men have to make up these fake, sanguinary uh dramas to imitate the the real true life and death struggle that women have uh with blood every month pouring out of them uh the the destruction of a little egg inside of them and then the real pain of childbirth which has actually a positive purpose unlike war and uh Bull, bullfighting, you know, which is just basically playing around. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's really interesting, Sparrow, that in a proverb or two, Blake um, makes a shift to impregnation. Oh yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily think he had uh, women who run with the wolves in mind, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but perhaps on some level, through association, he was on a similar page. Mm. Huh. Yeah, it's interesting, too, the end of Hemingway's Cheapers. Uh, hmm, Which one was it? One of those novels where the main character is, as Hemingway was, a ambulance driver or something, and he winds up in Italy, he winds up in a hospital, he falls in love with the nurse. A farewell the, what? A farewell to arms. Farewell to arms, yeah. And then she dies in childbirth. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it's got that sort of face of the First World War. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the, the, the novel ends with the woman and that war. And I remember being in Long Island College Hospital 
where yeah. my wife was in the birthing center there. It's very nice. They had like a group of doulas and stuff. It was all really um, soft and lovely and stuff. And then she was a bit late, um, two weeks late, induced pregnancy. She's now having our first baby, Indiana. And it's not going so well. She's been in labor for six hours, eight hours, 10 hours. It's just like we're coming to an impasse, you know, uh, a, a, a kind of an aporia, you know, a, a poria, no port, you know, no safe harbor, no getting off the ocean. And they said, well, we're going to need to do a cesarean section. And, you know, so I'm holding her hand. We're in the operating room. They've got the curtain up. You know, I'm looking at her head. She's looking at my head. We're holding hands. The doctor says, you know, I think you you should um, step out now. We're now going to do this procedure. And I stepped out into the hallway and I leaned against the wall and I said, oh, I don't know if I'm ever going to see my wife, I don't, you know, I, I don't know if this is, this is, she's now going to die. You know, mm. like that happens. It's very, um, childbirth is life and death, you know, maybe a little bit less so in this latter part of the, well, you know, since the latter part of the 20th century, et cetera. But, um, that was a definite, that thought deeply crystallized in me. And I was crying, you know, like, weeping mm. it's going like oh you know I, I, I. so i understand a little bit mm. yeah 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 that understand was, how a man in a way that a man can understand yeah exactly exactly and that's sublime i think also i think that that is yeah. sublime. this moment of creation but also of of flip the coin and terror and fear yeah i wonder if one could read this as kind of like a female, these are female uh, attributes, the roaring of lions, the howling of wolves, the raging of the stormy sea. It seems to me that the sea is often symbolized as a woman, and the destructive sword are portions of eternity too great for the eye of man. Like when your wife is screaming at you, telling you you're an idiot, or whatever she's screaming at you, and you know, is howling like a wolf at you, and you just can't deal with it. You can't deal with her rage. Just like, calm down. Why don't you be more like a man? <laughs> yeah, that rarely works. Doesn't work. I mean, of course, men are also insane, but they have somehow imagined that they aren't. I've been there. I... <laughs> <laughs> Silence among these. Yeah, well, I'm just trying to puzzle out what more, you know, we want to say at this juncture about this line. I was um, going to talk about Howlin' Wolf, except I couldn't remember any of his songs. I, uh, I had at least one of his albums. I think I had a few of those albums that Chess put out in the late 60s, early 70s. And some of them, I think, were like Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, and Little Walter. Um, one was just Howlin' Wolf solo. He's amazing. You know, one of the great musicians of the 20th century, I think, Howlin' Wolf. Alex Alan Lomax. 
Alan Lomax, didn't he record him in his rediscovery of some of these great Delta blues? But I think that Howlin' Wolf is one of those Chicago electric blues guys. Oh, he was electric. Okay, yeah. And he influenced yeah, Bob Dylan. Yeah, there's a movie called Festival where uh, it's a documentary about the Newport Folk Festival. I saw a lot of it at some little folk club on Stanton Street on the Lower East Side, you know, 23 years ago. And there was just all these, like, very white folk singers, Joan Baez, you know, there are women from the Appalachian Mountains. And then appears Howlin' Wolf with his electric guitar and his electric band, his incredibly deep kind of terrifying and kind of staggering voice mm. singing, you know, uh, I'm a backdoor man or something. And it's just like, whoa. Wow. It's just like tears, rips a hole in the film. kind of. Nice. So here's the scoop, you guys. You know, maybe I'll find some Howling Wolf. We'll close out oh, this yeah. session with some Howling Wolf. There's That's going to be good. Thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.